Welcome to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast, the first in our fifth volume of this program. Today's discussion is a follow-up to our newsletter topic, Pulmonary Exacerbations, Diagnoses, and Therapeutic Regimens. Joining us today is that issue's author, Dr. Patrick Flume, Professor of Medicine and Pediatrics at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is jointly presented by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. This program is supported by educational grants from AbbVie, Gilead Sciences, Inc., and Vertex Pharmaceuticals. Learning objectives for this audio program include describe a general definition of pulmonary exacerbations, define a successful recovery from a pulmonary exacerbation, and summarize the key unanswered questions about pulmonary exacerbations. Dr. Flume has indicated that he does not have any relevant financial interests or relationships with any commercial entities, and that his discussion today will refer to the non-FDA-approved use of macrolides in the treatment of cystic fibrosis, although these agents are in general use and are recommended by the guidelines. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the Cystic Fibrosis Review, and I want to thank you, Dr. Flume, for joining us today. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here with you today. In your newsletter issue, Doctor, you reviewed the relevant literature describing the use of antibiotics in pulmonary exacerbations, why some patients don't recover to baseline after a pulmonary exacerbation, and the importance of treating pulmonary exacerbations in mild lung disease. What I'd like to do today is discuss how some of that new information can translate into practice change in the clinic. Uh, so if you would, Dr. Flume, start us out by describing a patient. Let's start with a pediatric case. Our patient is 10 years of age, is homozygous for Delta F508, and so is pancreatic insufficient. He has no history of pseudomonas, but the clinic has a program of frequently culturing their patients, and so his last culture was an oropharyngeal swab that grew methicillin-susceptible staph aureus. His baseline lung function has an FEV1 that's 90% of predicted And the clinic thinks that the patient and the family are pretty adherent to therapy, in his case, which includes his airways clearance, Dornase Alpha, and hypertonic saline. So we get a call from home, and mom says that her son is having increasing cough and chest congestion, and he's not able to keep up with his exercise and athletics as he typically has done. Uh, My first question is a pretty simple one. Is this a pulmonary exacerbation? So most people, I think, would give the short answer and say yes, although we don't have a specific definition for a pulmonary exacerbation, but in general, it's when our patient's baseline status is worse. Years ago, the CF Foundation pulled together a consensus conference to come up with their first set of guidelines related to exacerbations, and they defined it as a change in respiratory signs and symptoms from the patient's baseline which necessitates treatment with antibiotics and augmented airway clearance. Now, the FDA would prefer that our definition is based upon the presentation of the patient, and then once we've made the diagnosis, that would prompt the therapy. And so if we look at those changes in respiratory signs and symptoms, the most common that we'll see will be an increase in cough, increase in chest congestion, decrease in exercise tolerance, which is what we're hearing from this particular patient. Some additional features that patients might see would be new findings on chest exam, like crackles. There might be some hemoptysis, a decrease in appetite or weight loss, or a drop in lung function. That would require bringing in the patient for a clinic visit. I think most people, if they know this patient well and they're hearing this description of the patient, are probably comfortable defining this as a pulmonary exacerbation. So, assuming this is a pulmonary exacerbation, 
How would this patient most likely be treated? So the most common approach to treatment would be the institution of antibiotics as well as a ramping up of their airways clearance, much like was stated in those CF guidelines. In terms of airways clearance therapies, most times folks will be talking to the patient or their parents to make sure that they're adherent. In some cases, they are not, and getting them to do their therapies is the most important step. They might increase the frequency. So, for example, instead of twice a day, go to three times a day. And then be certain that they're also inherent with their chronic therapies, such as in his case with Dornase or hypertonic saline. But antibiotics would most likely be prescribed for a patient like this, and that typically will be based upon the knowledge of what he has had in his cultures. Since he has not grown pseudomonas in the past, it's unlikely that an anti-pseudomonal antibiotic would be selected. Since he's grown methicillin-susceptible staph aureus, very likely to be an oral antibiotic, which could be a penicillin, a sulfa drug, doxycycline, which is targeting the methicillin-susceptible staph aureus. Let's assume that this patient has had these treatments you've described. How do you know when the exacerbation is resolved? So that's the critical question as to what is the main endpoint to know when this exacerbation has resolved. And various endpoints which have been prompted have been things like a change in symptoms, a change in lung function, getting back to their previous baseline, perhaps a change in quality of life, or time to next exacerbation. But since this particular patient is being treated based upon the worsening of symptoms, it's very likely that people are looking to see a resolution of those symptoms, that he gets back to this baseline. What's unfortunate is that we don't have any measures that are used routinely in the clinic. There are measures which are being evaluated by the FDA to see if they can be validated for use in clinical trials. If we wanted to look at lung function, it would require bringing the patient in before treatment to see if his lung function has changed. And if it has, then trying to get him back up to his previous baseline, which we had said was about 90% of predicted. The unfortunate finding looking at registry data is that patients often don't get all the way back to their lung function. So that's one of the challenges in these kinds of cases where they seem to be young, doing well, and we're comfortable treating these patients over the phone without requiring them to come in for a clinic visit. In fact, patients and families may not be willing to come in for a clinic visit and would prefer to be treated over the phone because it's very inconvenient. They're missing school or missing work. I think in this case, the patient probably would have been treated for 10 to 14 days of antibiotics with either a plan for a subsequent phone call, a conversation to see if he's recovered, or an appointment to the clinic to see if he is, in fact, back at his baseline lung function for a reevaluation. So after this patient has been treated and the exacerbation has been resolved, what are the next steps? What happens in the longer term? So when we are taking care of our patients and they have these exacerbations, We're trying to look at ways in terms of preventing those exacerbations, in part because they are inconvenient, they're associated with worse morbidity, they may be associated with loss of lung function that they don't recover, so we'd love to be able to prevent them. So when we think about exacerbations and their causes, there are some which are truly acute events, like a viral infection, and so we might, in that case, make sure that the patient has been fully immunized teach them good hygiene to try and prevent acquisition of other viral infections. In some cases, the reason that they may not fully recover is because of their chronic regimen or their underlying host response. 
there's not much we can do to manage the inflammation, the inflammatory response that these patients generate, at least not at this point, but we can try to reinforce the importance of doing their daily therapies because some of our patients, their exacerbations are not actually acute events, but what's happened is that there has been this accumulation of chronic airway secretions and perhaps we could do a better job with our chronic therapies and our airways clearance. So it becomes an opportune time to sort of reinforce that chronic management. And the one piece I wish we could do a much better job at is the documentation of these events so that we can learn from them to develop our best practices on what's the best way to manage these patients, particularly if we're doing these things over the telephone. So we need to know what prompted therapy and what was the outcome. Thank you for that patient and discussion, doctor. And we'll return with Dr. Patrick Flume from MUSC in just a moment. Hello, I'm Megan Ramsey, nurse practitioner and clinical coordinator for adults at the Johns Hopkins Cystic Fibrosis Program at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. I am one of the program directors of eCystic Fibrosis Review. These podcast programs will be provided on a regular basis to enable you to receive additional current, concise, peer-reviewed information through podcasting, a medium that is gaining wide acceptance throughout the medical community. In fact, today, there are over 5,000 medical podcasts. To receive credit for this educational activity and to review Hopkins policies, please go to our website at www. E-cysticfibrosisreview.org. This podcast is part of E-Cystic Fibrosis Review, a bi-monthly email-delivered program available by subscribing. Each issue reviews a current literature on focused topics important to clinicians caring for patients with cystic fibrosis. Continuing education credit for each newsletter and each podcast is provided by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine for Physicians and by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing for Nurses. Subscription to E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is provided without charge, and nearly a 1,000 of our colleagues have already become subscribers. The topic-focused literature reviews help them keep up-to-date on issues critical to maintaining the quality of care for their patients. For more information, to register to receive E-Cystic Fibrosis Review without charge and to access back issues, please go to www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. Welcome back to this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review podcast. I'm Bob Busker, Managing Editor of the program. Our guest is Dr. Patrick Flume, Professor of Medicine and Pediatrics at the Medical University of South Carolina in Charleston. And our topic is pulmonary exacerbations, diagnosis and therapeutic regimens. We've been discussing how the information Dr. Flume presented in his newsletter issue can be put into practice in the clinic. Uh, So to continue, doctor, please bring us another patient. So let's go to another common type of patient that we see, and now let's move into adolescence. So we have a 17-year-old a uh, young man who also is homozygous for Delta 508 and so is also pancreatic insufficient. He's undernourished, has a low body mass index, and unlike our previous patient, he has chronic airways infection with pseudomonas. This is not the first infection. He has grown it on repeated past cultures. His baseline lung function is an FEV1 that's 75% of predicted, and he's the patient that you are not so convinced that he's faithful to his treatment regimen. 
He's on a pretty robust regimen, which includes airways clearance, inhaled Dornase, inhaled hypertonic saline, inhaled antibiotics, and chronic macrolides. Now, we do need to say that macrolides are not actually indicated for the FDA for the treatment of cystic fibrosis, but we have demonstrated their benefit in cystic fibrosis patients, and they are in our practice guidelines. So that's a very difficult regimen for a 17-year-old to take, and so it's not surprising that he may not be fully adherent to therapy. And so again, we get a call from home, and his mother says that he has an increasing cough and sputum production, his appetite's down, he's not doing his therapies, which is consistent with the history we gave. This time, you choose to bring him to clinic and repeat his lung function. His FEV1 now is reduced. It's 55% of predicted, which is down from his baseline of 75%, and he's lost some weight as well, so his body mass index is decreased. How should this patient be treated? So first, I think everyone is going to agree that this patient has a pulmonary exacerbation and warrants intervention. And so the first question one has to decide is, how are you going to treat him? And the second question is, where are you going to treat him? Are you going to treat him at home or in the hospital? So the first one in terms of how are you going to treat him, I think antibiotics, again, are going to be a preferred regimen because he has pseudomonas in his cultures We actually have very few options when it comes to oral therapies. Generally speaking, that would be the fluoroquinolones, and very likely he's seen a lot of quinolones given his lung function status. People might prefer to have a broader choice of antibiotics, and in that case, you would need intravenous therapy. Although there are folks who are using combinations of oral and inhaled, IV and inhaled, and so forth. Since he's already supposedly on inhaled antibiotics, then to just say that that's what we're going to do would probably not be the best approach. And so I think most people would probably say this is a pretty significant drop in lung function in a young man who's undernourished. And so IV therapy would probably be the choice. Most people would probably give a combination of antibiotics. It's not necessarily because pseudomonas requires two antibiotics, but complex infections like we see in cystic fibrosis might be better covered with uh, dual coverage. Now the question comes at where? Should we do this in the hospital or should we do this at home? In some cases, the decision to hospitalize is because of the acuity of illness. If a patient is too ill, then we want to have them in a greater observed setting. But in other cases, we're bringing them into the hospital because we want to be certain that they get the therapy that they need. And it's not just about IV antibiotics because that can be done reasonably easy at home as well but it's the other aspects of therapy, airways clearance therapy in particular, but also nutritional management, monitoring for potential CF-related diabetes. And so I think in this particular case, because you're worried about the patient's adherence to therapy, you'd have little faith that he would actually ramp up what he needs. He needs IV antibiotics. I think most people are probably going to recommend hospitalization and treatment with IV antibiotics as well as the rest of his therapies. Selecting the antibiotics to treat this patient, what would guide your choices? So as I've already said, most people are probably going to use a combination of antibiotics. You will have the luxury of having his previous cultures. And so in many cases, people are probably trying to choose antibiotics for which that bug would be susceptible. It comes from our classic teaching of microbiology that we need to identify the bug and the susceptibilities because if we don't use that antibiotic, then the patient will fare poorly. But what we've learned in cystic fibrosis is that 
the information that we get from the microbiology lab is not very predictive of their clinical outcome. And the easiest example of which we describe that is that the patient has a pathogen which is resistant to the antibiotics that you are using, and yet the patient improves clinically. We've tried to know why that might be the case, and people have talked about synergy testing and so forth, but nothing has really risen to inform us. But what we have learned is that the infection in the CF patients is far more complex. It's not just those couple of bugs that get identified under standard culture techniques. And so when you look at microbiome testing, where you begin to understand that there may be hundreds of different species down there, what you don't know is, well, which are the bugs of interest? Which are the bugs that are causing the infection or the exacerbation? And so although we're constantly tempted to use susceptibility testing to guide our therapy, what we've learned is that it's probably a reasonable strategy to use the antibiotics upon which you had success previously. So, for example, if six months ago he had been treated with cefepime and tobramycin and did well, that might be a reasonable choice for today. We would perhaps recommend changing those antibiotics when the patient's not recovering in a way that you feel should be occurring, such as he's not getting better with this exacerbation, or he seems to be having more frequent exacerbations, and that might warrant a change in those antibiotics. The duration of IV antibiotic therapy, what would you expect it to be in a patient like this? So that's the million-dollar question as to what is the optimal duration of IV antibiotics. And when you talk to clinicians, they may tell you with great certainty that duration should be of, say, 10 days or 14 days. But when you look at what people actually do, you begin to see a very broad range of antibiotic durations that have been used. When we did this analysis for our guidelines a few years ago, what we found is that the average duration of antibiotics, there was a peak around 14 days, and there's another smaller peak at 21 days, but a widespread around that ranging from 2 to 32 days. In our guidelines, we basically stated that we didn't know what the optimal duration of therapy was. In previous guidelines, they said that that duration should be 10 to 14 days and perhaps longer if the patient has other features that would suggest that a longer duration is necessary. But it's a question that we desperately need to answer. So for obvious reasons, we would not want to treat for too short because we would anticipate they would not recover completely or they would have a re-exacerbation in a short period of time. But there are also considerable risks of treating too long because of the cost and the toxicity, the potential toxicity of these medications particularly with aminoglycosides, that our patients, our adult patients, after years of IV aminoglycoside use, we are seeing the results of toxicity with reduction in hearing, perhaps renal insufficiency. And so it's a terribly important question that needs to be answered. And we're trying to do that now with some novel approaches to understanding optimal treatment of exacerbations. One more question on this patient, doctor. How would you measure success in treating this patient's exacerbation? So that's another very important question. Obviously, clinicians are choosing to stop antibiotics at some point, so they've decided that they have achieved as much as they're going to achieve from the antibiotics. But for some of those patients, they're being treated for you know, a third week, a fourth week, or longer, and we're trying to understand what drives that decision, why it makes them want to treat for a longer period of time. 
So as I had mentioned earlier, there are some potential candidates of a clinical endpoint symptoms, such as returning to baseline, but we're not currently measuring that lung function. And so we can look at lung function, we measure it frequently, and we can talk about return to baseline. But that's one of the things we're asking in our study of exacerbations is for the clinicians to tell us what their target lung function is that they're trying to get. Because we have data now from the registry that shows that a considerable portion of patients don't fully recover back to their baseline. And so when that doesn't happen, we are trying to understand why the clinicians chose to stop therapy. Is it because it's not an achievable goal, they've established a new baseline, or should we have treated for a different period of time? The other endpoint that people have talked about is the time to the next exacerbation. But some data that we have looked at suggests that the median time to that next exacerbation is about six months later. And that just seems too long to blame the duration of treatment on. And it's likely, much more likely, that that has something to do with their chronic therapies that they do between these exacerbations. But another potentially attractive endpoint that we can look at is something we'll call early treatment failure. And what I mean by that is that that time to next exacerbation occurs soon after completion. And this is comparable to what has been done in other types of lung infections like ventilator-associated pneumonia or community-acquired pneumonia, looking at the proportion of patients who require or get treated with antibiotics less than 30 days after the previous completion. What we're hoping to learn from our observational trial of exacerbation is what are the relevant endpoints, because that's what we need to do if we're going to study and learn about optimal treatment of exacerbations. Thank you for sharing your thoughts, doctor. Let me ask you to bring us one more patient now, if you would, please. Let's now go to an adult patient. So let's talk about a 27-year-old female, also homozygous for Delta F508, so also pancreatic insufficient. She too has chronic infection with pseudomonas, and her baseline lung function is an FEV1 that's 55% of predicted. She is a patient that you believe to be pretty adherent to her therapies, which include airways clearance, inhaled Dornase, inhaled hypertonic saline, inhaled antibiotics, and oral macrolides. She calls and says that she feels she's having signs and symptoms of an exacerbation but she has increasing cough and sputum production, but she also describes coughing up blood, and she's coughing up about a quarter cup of bright red blood as part of this event. Would you hospitalize this patient or treat her at home? I think everyone would agree that she has a pulmonary exacerbation, and we need to treat her. The other interesting aspect here is the hemoptysis. And when we were trying to put together our guidelines on how to manage complications such as hemoptysis, we very quickly learned that there weren't any published trials that really provide you with the evidence. And so for those guidelines, we did a consensus document, but we obtained the consensus from a panel of pediatric and adult physician experts from around North America, none of whom knew who else was on this group and did it using the Delphi approach to get their opinion on these recommendations. And one of the questions we asked is, should the patient be treated in the hospital? And of course, the answer we got from them was that it depends. It depends on how much blood they're coughing up. So we had to separate scant hemoptysis, which might be less than five cc's, a teaspoon of blood, all the way up to massive hemoptysis, which would be defined as more than 250 cc's of blood in a day. 
So this patient falls in that moderate range, and generally speaking, these uh, experts felt that was something that was better served in the inpatient setting. The treatment of the exacerbation is going to be principally the same. However, the worry was that could this result in even greater bleeding, and so observation was going to be necessary. So in this case, I think most people would recommend hospitalization. Now, with an exacerbation of this magnitude, I think we can assume you're going to use IV antibiotics. But is there a role for aerosolized antibiotics in conjunction with the IV? So that was a question that we also addressed in our guidelines on exacerbations. And principally, we're talking about using inhaled aminoglycosides like tobramycin when you're already using intravenous aminoglycosides. And traditionally, people would say that intravenous therapy is the gold standard because you're going to get drugged to the site of infection. But what we've learned recently looking at MRI scans of the lung, looking at perfusion, is that during exacerbations, there are areas of the lung in which perfusion is reduced. And so you don't know really where your antibiotic is being delivered intravenously or by the inhaled route. And so that sort of lends the idea that maybe there might be some advantage to using inhaled therapy along with intravenous therapy, that you're sort of hitting the infection from both directions and increasing your probability of trying to get drug to where you want it. The problem we had with the guidelines is that there wasn't any evidence that showed that this was more efficacious. There wasn't any evidence to show that it was safer. So when we sat down to try and design a study and say, well, let's just imagine what that study might look like, one of the key questions we faced was about timing of dosing. Because when you use an inhaled antibiotic, some of that drug is going to be absorbed. And when you're dealing with a drug like an aminoglycoside, where you're measuring levels, you're doing pharmacokinetics to help you dose your IV therapy, if how much drug is being absorbed, is it going to affect those results? So we did a small study of 20 patients looking at that, the effect of the timing of the inhaled antibiotics. And what we found is that if you give the inhaled drug in the latter part of the dosing interval, so in the few hours before the next dose is to be delivered, in about 40-45% of patients, you will actually change your PK measurements. They're going to absorb enough drug that it might change the way that you dose intravenously. So we didn't show anything about efficacy. We didn't show anything about safety. But what we did show is that if you choose to use inhaled along with IV, you need to understand that occurs because it will impact how you interpret those levels that you get. Besides the antibiotics, are there other therapies you would recommend for this patient? So the standard therapies that would be used in these patients, like airway clearance for chronic therapies, which includes the Dornase and the hypertonic saline, there are some people who are concerned about continuing some of these things because in a patient with hemoptysis, is it going to aggravate the bleeding? For example, is hypertonic saline going to make them cough so much that that clot will break free and it'll aggravate additional bleeding? Same for airway clearance therapies. Others would say, well, the problem is inflammation. And so, you know, you've got to treat the inflammation. You've got to treat that underlying process or the bleeding is just going to keep going. In our guidelines, what we found is, again, it depended that if patients had less hemoptysis, more like scant hemoptysis, there was very little concern about holding off on those therapies, and so they would be continued. In the setting of massive hemoptysis, there was greater concern about inhaled therapies and airway clearance therapies. 
And so the recommendations generally in massive hemoptysis is, is hold up on airway clearance therapies, particularly things like VEST or IPV, which are more rigorous than, say, active cycle breathing. And then with the inhaled therapies, maybe back off. But in this particular patient's case, who has moderate, there was no real clear recommendation, but the general hint was that people were a little more concerned about hypertonic saline because it was more likely to aggravate the cough. So I think in a patient like this, people are probably willing to continue some of the inhaled therapies like antibiotics and Dornase, but far more likely to withhold the hypertonic until the hemoptysis resolves. But then other therapies that have been tried, particularly in patients like this, are corticosteroids to try and reduce the inflammation. When we looked at that question for the guidelines on exacerbations, we again found insufficient information upon which to make a recommendation. There are clearly cases in which patients seem to improve with corticosteroids, but in terms of it as a routine therapy, that part we don't have enough evidence upon which to make a recommendation. Thank you for today's cases and discussion, Dr. Flume. I'd like to switch topics now, and and let me ask you, in the current investigations into pulmonary exacerbations, what are the key areas that are being focused on? So as I had alluded to earlier, exacerbations come with increased morbidity, increased cost, but other key findings is that many of these patients lose lung function from which they don't recover, and we desperately want to try to maintain lung function. So I had listed three different hypotheses as to why patients might not recover their lung function, one of which could be the etiology of the exacerbation, and there's still a need to know what might be causing exacerbation, and we have to also know that all of our patients' exacerbations are not necessarily because of the same cause, and so we're trying to understand the phenotype to try to help guide some therapy. So if the etiology of the exacerbation, like viruses, change in bacterial community, allergies, then are there biomarkers that would tell us when that's occurring? But our main goal in those patients would be prevention. How do we prevent those events from occurring? The second major hypothesis are patient factors, such as their underlying pulmonary impairment, what chronic therapies they are using, and their host response. Because if we're now developing therapies there, we can try to focus on trying to deal with inflammation, perhaps, or working on adherence to their chronic therapies. But the third one is the one we're focusing on in our studies of exacerbations, and that's the treatment. Because if we do inadequate treatment, and that's why the patients don't fully recover, well, that's where we could actually try and work to improve. So two main areas of inadequate treatment. One would be delayed intervention that the patient's symptoms or issues are developing, but we're just starting too late. And one approach to that is being looked at in a study called the E-ICE, I-C-E, trial, in which patients are doing a little closer monitoring at home, which would provide the information, which would allow the clinician to prompt therapy sooner. We're trying to define optimal treatments, and that's what we're doing in our STOP trial, which is the standardized treatment of pulmonary exacerbations, to try to begin to define the clinical endpoints that we can use in our first interventional trials. So there's a lot of exciting work going on in the study of pulmonary exacerbations now. Thank you for sharing those insights, Dr. Flume. To wrap things up, I'd like to revisit our learning objectives in light of today's discussion. So to begin... Describing a general definition of pulmonary exacerbations. The first is there's been a change from the baseline in respiratory symptoms. The second would be 
there's been a change in other signs, and most people are looking at change in lung function, such as FEV1. And the third key one is the presentation with other relevant features, such as coughing up blood or hemoptysis. And our second objective, defining the success of recovery from a pulmonary exacerbation. So in general, there are two key areas that clinicians use to determine when to stop therapy in treatment of an exacerbation. One of those would be symptom resolution. So whatever symptoms were worse, that they've now returned to their baseline. The second one would be recovery of lost lung function. So getting back to that baseline lung function. Now, there will be some folks that will have a standard treatment duration. This is how long they treat patients. And finally, those are the endpoints that people are using when they're taking care of an individual patient. But other important outcomes that people talk about include the time to the next exacerbation. And finally, the key unanswered questions about pulmonary exacerbations. We outlined several unanswered questions in our guidelines because we, we asked them and we didn't find sufficient evidence. But I think there are some key questions that we should do better on. One is the duration of IV antibiotics. The second is defining a role for corticosteroids, who should get them and when. And the third is hospital versus home therapy. What time should be spent in the hospital for optimum management? Dr. Patrick Flume from the Medical University of South Carolina, thank you for participating in this E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Podcast. Well, it was my great pleasure to be here. I do enjoy talking about exacerbations, and I hope that our next conversation, I have more answers than I had today. To receive CME credit for this activity, please take the post-test at www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org forward slash test. This podcast is presented in conjunction with the E-Cystic Fibrosis Review Newsletter, a peer-reviewed literature review certified for CME-CE credit, emailed monthly to clinicians treating patients with cystic fibrosis. This activity has been developed for the CF care team, including pulmonologists, pediatric pulmonologists, gastroenterologists, pediatricians, infectious disease specialists, respiratory therapists, dietitians, nutritionists, pharmacists, nurses and nurse practitioners, physical therapists, and others involved in the care of patients with cystic fibrosis. There are no fees or prerequisites for this activity. This activity has been planned and implemented in accordance with the essential areas and policies of the Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education through the joint sponsorship of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine is accredited by the ACCME to provide continuing medical education for physicians. The Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine designates this enduring material for a maximum of 0.5 AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Physicians should claim only the credit commensurate with the extent of their participation in this activity. The Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing is accredited as a provider of continuing nursing education by the American Nurses Credentialing Center's Commission on Accreditation. For nurses, this 0.5 contact hour educational activity is provided by the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Each podcast carries a maximum of 0.5 contact hour. This educational resource is provided without charge, but registration is required. To register to receive E-Cystic Fibrosis Review via email, please go to our website, www.ecysticfibrosisreview.org. The opinions and recommendations expressed by faculty and other experts whose input is included in this program are their own. This enduring material is produced for educational purposes only. Use of the names of the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing implies review of educational format, design, and approach. 
Please review the complete prescribing information for specific drugs, combinations of drugs, or use of medical equipment, including indication, contraindications, warnings, and adverse effects before administering therapy to patients. E-Cystic Fibrosis Review is supported by educational grants from AbbVie, Gilead Sciences Incorporated, and Vertex Pharmaceuticals. This program is copyright with all rights reserved by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing.